understand it. I don't know why. It seems like every day a new tight end is getting in trouble. A new tight end is getting hurt. A new tight end is getting suspended. A new tight end is getting arrested. I don't understand it. And the data backs it up. We've talked about the data on tight ends before. Tight ends have the highest fragility rate of any position. They missed more games. Tight ends missed more games in 2013 and 2014 due to injury than running backs. And it wasn't a small percentage. They are the most fragile, most likely to be injured position on the football field. And it makes sense. It's intuitive. On every play, the tight end is experiencing a violent collision. They are blocking one of these mutant outside linebacker defensive ends. Or they're running over the middle and catching a ball between defenders and then getting smashed by a kamikaze free safety. On every given... There's no rest for the tight end. There's no respite. There's no... There's no play where he just kind of flares out, like a running back just sort of flares out and takes a, takes a play off. Wide receiver is blocking, but he knows the, the run is a sweep to the other side of the field, so he just sort of goes through the motions, blocking, takes a play off. Not so with the tight ends. Every single play, they are in danger. They are operating within a swirl of violence. And, again, the injury list bears this out. The statistics on injury rates of tight ends bears this out. And now we're seeing a larger problem. We're seeing a problem with tight ends are getting busted for performance-enhancing drugs. Tight ends are getting busted for shooting a gun in the air. Andrew Corliss was shooting a gun in the air. And then when the cops came, he ran away from the cops running with a gun. Anytime your football player is running down an alley away from the cops while holding a gun, he's not playing again. Ever. That player won't be playing again. I mean, name me the player who was running from the police while brandishing a handgun and made it back into the NFL. And not only back into the NFL, made it back into the NFL as a fantasy-relevant asset. Name the player. Who's that player? I can't think of him. So Andrew Corliss, forget about him. Who's next? Who's next in Green Bay in terms of the tight end position? Does it even matter? Because after the Andrew Corliss news broke, I heard the mainstream fantasy analysts, it, it, it was like, they, it, it was who could come out faster with their innocuous blurb about Richard Rogers being a sleeper. You know, I, I could just like with Antonio Gates and Ladarius Green, you could count it down. As soon as the news broke, you're like, okay, the tweets from the mainstream fantasy analysts that are trying to appeal to the ma a mainstream audience and and let them know who this Richard Rogers person is for the first time. Five, four, three, two, one. Boop. 
And then there's some tweet about the total number of snaps that Corliss had last year added with the total number of snaps of Richard Rodgers projecting a full-time snap share for Richard Rodgers in an offense with Aaron Rodgers. That's what I call a sleeper. Sleeper alert. Oh, here's Richard Rodgers' sleeper. So all you hear for an hour period of time after the news breaks are those that have a big audience who are trying to get the word out to the knucklehead fantasy players that play in one standard league a year and don't even pay attention to fantasy football until August. We're make, we're, we have to go out and make sure that those people know about this Richard Rogers guy. I don't operate like that. That's not my audience. That's not the Roto Underworld audience. Roto Underworld audience, you know you can contact us at Roto Underworld on Twitter and Roto Underworld at gmail.com. This audience is more sophisticated. I don't need to appeal to a large audience that doesn't know what they're doing, that doesn't know who Richard Rogers is. I assume all of you know who Richard Rogers is. Of course you all know who Richard Rogers is. And you can put two and two together that if Andrew Corliss goes down, that Richard Rogers is now more relevant and a guy that you might want to draft at the end of your drafts. I don't I shouldn't need to tweet that out. I shouldn't need to tweet out hashtag sleeper with some stat about snaps and targets that I'm projecting for Richard Rogers. You don't need that from me. Uh, to me, that's stating the obvious. I would never tweet that. I would never think to tweet that. It never occurs me to tweet that because it never occurs to me that my audience wouldn't think that that's self-evident. To me, that's talking down to the audience. If I put Richard Rogers hashtag sleeper in a tweet, to me, that's talking down to you as if you don't know who Richard Rogers is, as if you don't have a cursory understanding of the various depth charts around the league. There's only 32 teams, and there's only four positions. And if you care at all about fantasy, I would think that you have a general understanding of who the starter is and the backup across the league at all four of the relevant fantasy positions. That you don't need me cluttering your timeline with Richard Rogers hashtag sleeper. Useless contribution to the fantasy football discussion. So no. So no. And I'm not trying to appeal to the mainstream knucklehead fantasy player who doesn't even think about the sport, the game, until August. That's not who I'm trying to appeal to. But you can tell the fantasy experts who are trying to be more mainstream. I'm trying to broaden my audience. And that and and it's revealed when they're stating the obvious. Like, oh, Richard Rogers is a great late round pick. You think? No, really? Thanks for that. Oh, I I didn't know who he was. I'm going to pencil him in as my potential second tight end in the late teens. Thank you so much for that. I am... That's so helpful. <laughs> so, when it comes to these situations, I like to have a different conversation. Okay? So, my question is, when you lose Andrew Corliss the only blocking tight end on your team who was any good at blocking 
because Richard Rodgers was near the bottom five. He was at least in the bottom ten on Pro Football Focus in terms of individual tight end blocking. We talked about Ladarius Green, how he was a an average blocker last year. Richard Rodgers was well below average, one of the worst in the league. So to me, it's an indictment of Ted Thompson that the next player up on the depth chart after Andrew Corliss is Richard effing Rodgers. He is terrible. Let's go to playerprofiler.com. Richard Rodgers, he runs a 4.87. He's slow. That's 21st percentile. He's also not that big. He's only 6'4", 257. If you're going to run a 4.87, you better be huge. That's why Richard Rodgers' 90.0 height-adjusted speed score is 22nd percentile. But maybe he has great burst. Maybe he can... Maybe he can... He can get poof, just explode off the line of scrimmage maybe 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 not his burst score on playerprofiler.com for richard rogers 113.1 27th percentile yikes so when you combine his vertical jump and his broad jump into one metric he stinks maybe he's very agile we know that agility score especially size adjusted agility score is an indicator of tight end talent we've talked about this with austin safarian jenkins Tyler Eifert, great size-adjusted agility. What about Richard Rogers' size-adjusted agility? Well, his agility score, the three-cone drill and the 20-yard shuttle mixed together, 1170, 34th percentile. That You add it all up, Richard Rogers has a 9.80, 13th percentile catch radius. He's awful. Well, maybe he was really productive in college. So maybe there's some, there's some exceptions Larry Donnell, there's just a handful of, of tight ends whose workout metrics weren't very... Heath Miller, for example. Workout metrics, not too exciting, but they were very do, they were dominant college players. How about Richard Rodgers? His college dominator rating? 10.5%. 23rd percentile. The guy's not good. He's terrible. And you would think that if he lacks any kind of explosion, agility in the passing game, if he lacks a resume of, of being productive in the passing game in college, you'd think he'd be a good blocker instead of being bottom 10 in the league. He's an abomination. The only tight end that's worse than Richard Rodgers in the league is the player he's best comparable to on playerprofiler.com. Mikel or Michael Rivera. No one contacted the show. I, I ask you all, buzzards, buzzing around my head, sending me these useless tweets, which we're going to get to in a minute. I ask you one question. How do you pronounce this Rivera character, this Rivera tight end on Oakland? Is it Mikel or Michael? Nothing. No responses. No feedback. Thanks a lot. The audience is growing. I mean, we've doubled our audience just in the last couple months. Yet still, all of you, is that what's going on now? When the audience was small, I was peppered, peppered with feedback, peppered with tips, peppered with uh, words I mispronounced so I can do better. Now that the audience is four times what it was just a few months ago, oh, now you all are saying, oh, I guess the next guy is going to, it's like, when someone's getting beat up in the street, the reason why none of the neighbors call the police because they think the guy in the house next door is going to call the, the, the police. And then it turns out everybody's looking at each other and no one 
has called the police. Meanwhile, someone's getting their ass kicked in the street. Do something, people! Let me know! Is this Mikel or Michael? I can't take this anymore! I'm living in suspense! Either way, he's horrible! He's atrocious! He, he and Richard Rodgers... I, I can't believe they're NFL players. It's hard for me to believe that they made it to the NFL. I don't know how they did it. Awful, terrible, horrendous blockers that aren't athletic or particularly effective in the passing game. Huh? How is that in the NFL? That sounds like a CFL player. That sounds like Arena League. That sounds like, does the European League, does the, is there still a European football? Sounds like they would be fine in those leagues, but not in the NFL Mikel Rivera. I love it, though. That's why I love drafting Clive Walford. Hello? Clive Walford? Hello? Who doesn't love Clive Walford when you see how atrocious Mikel Rivera is in every phase? Clive Walford's sitting there going, okay. He's at, he's at camp going, this is the, the, the competition at the tight end position? Is this guy who I'm more athletic than... This Mikel Rivera character, by every measure, I was much more productive at a major conference university. The U? And anybody thinks I'm going to lose snaps to this Mikel Rivera character? No. Clive Walford's going to be a every down tight end this year. And if he's not, someone in Oakland is doing something wrong. Speaking of doing something wrong, the guy that's been doing a lot wrong in terms of drafting talent for his team, the general manager who's been failing, and yet you never hear about all of his failings, even though his laundry, he has a laundry list of failed draft picks that have either already failed or are going to fail, like Richard Rogers. Ted Thompson. Ted Thompson. Because when I ask people, honestly, tell me, why do you like Richard Rogers? Why is Richard Rogers a quote unquote sleeper? Why is he a sleeper? Why? Why? Tell me why. What do you like about Richard Rogers? Why? Tell me why. Give me the give me the piece of information that will help me understand why you think Richard Rogers isn't terrible. The answer is, well, I don't really have anything for you, but Ted Thompson drafted him, and Ted Thompson must know something we don't. Right. Right. Okay. All right. I think if we've learned anything on this show together, it's to not think that way. It's to not assume that Chip Kelly or the general manager, the coach, just knows something. That's not an answer. You need to think more critically than that. That is never the answer. It might be that there's simply a misconception out there that Ted Thompson is some genius receiving receiver evaluator some receiver savant that's what I've heard about Ted Thompson where does that narrative come from I don't understand it I think if Aaron Rodgers is your quarterback of course all of your receivers are going to look good T.Y. Hilton looks great because Andrew Luck is his quarterback does Ryan Grigson is he a a genius evaluator of wide receiver talent because of T.Y. Hilton? I don't even know if he drafted T.Y. Hilton. Who cares? Let's assume Grigson drafted T.Y. Hilton. Is he a genius? No. Just because he has Andrew Luck. 
Andrew Luck makes all of his receivers look great. Aaron Rodgers makes all of his receivers look great. It's not Ted Thompson. Ted Thompson's not some genius whose acumen in evaluating wide receivers rises above all of the others. He's this, this anomaly. You know that doesn't make sense. So why do you let people tell you this and you take it on face value? It's just silly. Ted Thompson is so overrated. Ted Thompson's the most overrated general manager in sports. And Exhibit A is this Richard Rogers abomination. But look, let's look at his track record. Ted Thompson. He had Charles Johnson on his roster. And he released him. Yeah, Devontae Adams, he drafted in the second round, which was an enormous reach. Why did he draft Devontae Adams in the second round? Because Ted Thompson apparently overvalues counting stats accumulated in the Mountain Whack Conference with Derek Carr as your quarterback. So, Ted Thompson fell for that one. Hmm, you'd think if he was a savant, he wouldn't fall for those counting stats. <laughs> Weird. <laughs> Against awful competition like Wyoming. But, <laughs> guess he fell for it. How about Jared Arbordarius? Drafted him. Why? I don't know. A guy with a possession receiver ceiling who's not special in any way, really, drafts him with a fifth-round pick. Could have had other players. Could have had players that were more exciting, more explosive. Doesn't matter. He's a genius. He must know something about Jared Arbordarius, even though Jared Arbordarius is going to get cut this year. So that draft pick was a waste. Ty Montgomery. Why are you drafting Ty Montgomery? With a middle round pick, it's not like he took Ty Montgomery in the seventh round. He used real, actual draft capital on Ty Montgomery. When you already have Jordy Nelson, and you already signed Randall Cobb, and you already have Devontae Adams, who was your reach from last year, and you have an actual, you do have one good receiver on your roster that you drafted recently, Jeff Janis. Yes, the blind squirrel does find the nut now and then. Ted Thompson, the blind squirrel, found Jeff Janis. Congratulations. So, if you have all of this receiving talent, why are you wasting a draft pick on Ty Montgomery? That doesn't make sense. Ty Montgomery doesn't even have a position in the NFL. No one can figure out where he's best deployed. Is he an H-back? Is he a wide receiver? Would he be playing in the slot? Is he actually more equipped to be a running back? Is he just a kick returner? Is he just a specialist? Nobody knows. He's a six-foot-tall wide receiver that runs a 4.55 and had a below-average college dominator rating and was old and had one of the lowest yards per reception we've seen by a college wide receiver. It was actually below 10. Ty Montgomery's college yards per reception, 9.9. That's shockingly low. That's someone who has to operate within a five-yard distance from the line of scrimmage. Ugh. They already have Devontae Adams. Devontae Adams' ceiling is as a slot receiver in the NFL. Ty Montgomery's ceiling is as a slot receiver in the NFL. Is Now Ted Thompson, is this his master plan? His savant master plan to corner the market on one-dimensional slot receivers who may or may not be good kick returners? He used a third-round pick on that. On an asset he in a position he didn't need. Weird. Richard Rogers. 
also blew, burned a third-round pick on a tight end. And, and nobody saw that coming. When they drafted Richard Rodgers, everybody was scratching their heads. Why would you draft an unathletic tight end that can't block in the third round? What are you thinking? Ted Thompson, well, I'm Ted Thompson. I know things. It doesn't matter who I draft. I can draft someone who's who should be a seventh-round pick. I can draft him in the third round, and it's going to be a self-fulfilling prophecy because I drafted him. He'll be great. That's how it works when you're Ted Thompson. No, it's not. That's how it works when you have Aaron Rodgers. When you have Aaron Rodgers, it doesn't matter. You're going to draft Richard Rodgers, and he's going to be fantasy relevant. I went and picked up Richard Rodgers in this one league that allows real-time adding and dropping. Of course. He's going to be the starting tight end with Aaron Rodgers. I'm not an idiot. But Ted Thompson could have a better tight end as his penciled in as the starter for 2015. And he wouldn't have had to use any draft capital. In fact, he could have signed a player he already had who was already familiar with Aaron Rodgers and, and the offensive system they have in Green Bay. And he could have had him cheap. His name's Brandon Bostick. Brandon Bostick is better by every measure than Richard Rodgers. Brandon Bostick, I, I get it, small school, 37.7% dominator rating. He was the go-to receiver at Newberry College. I get it, small school. But still, he was the go-to receiver. There's no way Richard Rodgers, at, in any division, in, at any level, would be a go-to receiver. The reason Brandon Bostick was a go-to receiver at Newberry is because he runs a 4.64 at 6'3", 245 pounds, which comes out to a 103.8 height-adjusted speed score, 68th percentile, and he has a great burst, 123.5%. 123.5 burst score on playerprofiler.com. So yeah, Brandon Bostick has proven to have football skills and athleticism. So... Let's dump him. And guess who picked him up? Of course. The, 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 it's almost like the gravitational pull that Rick Spielman and the Minnesota Vikings have. Whenever there's a talent that's released in the universe, in the NFL universe, they are drawn. The gravity just pulls them to Minnesota. Oh, you don't know what you had in Brandon Bostic? Pulled onto the Vikings roster. Awesome pickup by the Vikings. Why was he dropped? Why was he dropped? He was dropped for the irrational reason that he he fumbled a Brandon Bostic fumbled an onside kick in the playoffs, and he became a punchline. And for PR purposes, for PR purposes, Green Bay decided to drop it. That's how we're running our franchise. That's how you're making personnel decisions, Ted Thompson. Based on PR. Because Brandon Bostic received some mean tweets. So you're going to drop him? You're going to drop, your by far and away, your most athletic tight end? It's ridiculous. That shows a level of incompetence in the front office. That shows a Brownsian level of incompetence. The Browns, just like... Green Bay released Charles Johnson and then Rick Spielman said uh, hello yes I'll, I'll take a Charles Johnson thank you very much 
And then Green Bay does it again, dropping Brandon Bostic or not tendering Brandon Bostic an extension. Oh, well, thank you very much. We'll, we'll take Brandon Bostic on the cheap. Appreciate that, Green Bay. Thank you, Ted Thompson. Oh, and then we do have buzzards. Of course we have buzzards writing in. You do know Charles Johnson wasn't released by Green Bay. The Browns signed Charles Johnson off Green Bay's practice squad. So let me tell you something, everybody. Let me tell you something, buzzards. I'm looking up at you right now. Let me, let me explain to you how practice squads work. So a practice squad member isn't an actual member of the team. It's a player that simply agreed to practice with the team. And here's how the mechanics work. The roster management mechanics work as follows. You start off with a 90-man roster. And then throughout camp, you cut it down and you cut it down until you get to a 53-man roster. In the process, you make cuts. And whenever you make cuts, all those players go on waivers. And all 31 teams have a chance to claim that player and add him to their newly cut-down roster. So... At the end of training camp, when teams all cut down to 53, there's a whole flood of players that are on the waiver wire. And if you chose your 53-man roster, you're set. And then you go out and you look at everyone that was cut. And you look at your 52nd and your 53rd man and you go, well, is anyone that's floating out here on waivers, would we rather have them on our roster than the players we currently have on the back of our roster, and then sometimes you claim those players. Now, if you want a player to be on your practice squad, you first have to release them, and they go to waivers. And again, the other 31 teams have a chance to claim them and add them to their 53-man roster. If they go unclaimed on waivers, then you approach the player and you go, excuse me, well, I understand that we cut you, but we would like you to join our practice squad, which essentially is just you agreeing to practice with us and then not come with us on game day. Would you agree to do that? And then the player says yes or no. The player can go and after he's been cut and he didn't, he realizes he didn't make the 53-man roster, like Charles Johnson didn't make the 53-man roster in his rookie year with Green Bay, which was a mistake by Green Bay. Green Bay, they did learn their lesson. Green Bay learned their lesson with Charles from Charles Johnson. And they applied that lesson to Jeff Janis. So instead of trying to get cute and cutting Jeff Janis on final cuts and trying to quote-unquote sneak him onto the practice squad, they said, no, we're not going to let anyone poach Jeff Janis. Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. We're not going to be shamed this time. We're going to go ahead and sign Jeff Janis to the 53-man roster, as we should have Charles Johnson. But no, we never did that with Charles Johnson. Instead, we cut him, and then we offered him a spot on the practice squad. The practice squad isn't an extension of the active roster. That's not how the practice squad works. Anyone can be signed off any practice squad by any team at any time. It's really a meaningless designation. So stop with this, these corrections that I'm getting that, oh, well, he was on the practice squad. It doesn't matter. Whatever practice squad you're on at any given time doesn't matter. That doesn't mean you're affiliated with that team. You're, that's just the place you're training and working out. <laughs> that's all it means. Any of, the, any of the 32 teams can sign you at any moment. 
off of any team's practice squad. So enough with that wrong correction. And the buzzards are great when the buzzards actually give me tips and corrections that are valid. But the worst is when I get trolled or I get these buzzard emails or buzzard tweets where you don't even where the buzzard doesn't even know what he's talking about. And that was the case with this Charles Johnson was on the practice squad, didn't you know that? More buzzard writes in. I keep hearing you touting DeMarco Murray as the first overall selection in fantasy drafts, but aren't you overlooking Ryan Matthews? Let me tell you something. I love Ryan Matthews. Ryan Matthews is great. Ryan Matthews has tremendous metrics. What's not to like about Ryan Matthews is my question. Metrics people, me included, love Ryan Matthews. Football people hate Ryan Matthews. That's the problem. How can you not love Ryan Matthews? He's six foot, two hundred and twenty pounds, and runs a four four five. That's a one twelve point two speed score. To go with a thirty five point nine college dominator rating, which was seventy fifth percentile, and a six point six yards per carry, eighty sixth percentile at the college level. He broke out at an early age. Nothing not to. Ryan Matthews has a fantastic profile. If I were an NFL GM in this past offseason, I would have signed Ryan Matthews to be my every-down workhorse. That's me! Okay? But the, the reason why I'm drafting DeMarco Murray number one overall, and why I think, more specifically, more, the reason I think DeMarco Murray has the highest floor amongst flawed options at the running back position this year it is nothing to do with Ryan Matthews. Comparing DeMarco Murray and Ryan Matthews is a false dichotomy. There will be enough running back touches to support DeMarco Murray as an RB1 in fantasy and Ryan Matthews as an RB3 in fantasy. And I'm not going to get I'm not going to worry about DeMarco Murray because of the presence of Ryan Matthews like others. Because I learned a lesson not long ago. The lesson is the more that I impose my sensibilities on a running back's touch distribution for a team, the more I impose my sensibilities to when I'm trying to predict the target distribution for the wide receivers on a team, the wronger I am. The same principle applies to Joseph Randall. In previous years, I would have dismissed Joseph Randall as a small, unathletic running back because I would have been imposing my own sensibilities. I would have been assuming that Dallas would eventually figure this out. And in Philadelphia, if I were to impose my own sensibilities, I would assume that Philadelphia would soon realize that Ryan Matthews is just as good as DeMarco Murray. And that there should be an even timeshare between those two. If I were running the Philadelphia Eagles, I would implement an even timeshare between DeMarco Murray and Ryan Matthews to keep both those running backs as fresh as possible throughout the game because I like Ryan Matthews. But that doesn't matter. What matters is what the team thinks. The team signed DeMarco Murray to a huge contract. 
They only signed Ryan Matthews to, to an $11 million contract. And we know from the anecdotal reports from football offices that it is unanimous. Football people do not think much of Ryan Matthews. And the fact that he could only garner $11 million on the open market confirms that belief. On the other hand, DeMarco Murray, in particular, in the Eagles' front office, is highly regarded. And so it's that idea, it's that concept that you have to use and leverage when you are projecting touches. You cannot allow your own beliefs about a player's talent to cloud your judgment when you are trying to project, project touches. So I try to keep it simple. Philadelphia clearly loves DeMarco Murray. And so DeMarco Murray, having just signed a big contract, is going to be the bell cow running back for all intents and purposes. Ryan Matthews will, will be the, the lead back for a drive or two throughout the game, but that DeMarco Murray will be the primary running back, regardless of what I think of, of the talent level of the two players. I just can't let, I know, the moment I stopped letting my feelings about the talent level of the particular players bleed into my projections for touches, bleed into my projections for targets, that's when my projections improved. Unless it's Tevin Coleman. If it's Tevin Coleman, forget it. If it's Tevin Coleman... I am biased. I will allow my feelings to override my projections. Last week, we talked about Tevin Coleman. And I said that Tevin Coleman could rush for a thousand less yards this year with Atlanta than he did last year with Indiana. That Tevin Coleman's efficiency could be three yards per carry less at the NFL level than it was at the college level. And Tevin Coleman would still outperform his ADP, his draft position in every format. Think about that. But again, this is, I, I sound like a broken record. I know I'm being repetitive with Tevin Coleman. But the reason I keep bringing this up is because I continue to read bad analysis about Tevin Coleman that Tevin Coleman is simply a change of pace running back, that he's a boomer bust guy, and that Devonta Freeman has a chance to hold off Coleman for the starting job. That is lunacy. You cannot believe that, even though you're reading it everywhere. Just like we talked about, Martavis Bryant wasn't a good player at Clemson. Therefore, you need to be careful about drafting Martavis Bryant too high and believing too much in Martavis Bryant. Devonta Freeman also wasn't very good at Florida State. His college dominator rating at Florida State was only 17.8%, 19th percentile. He was in a full-blown, one-for-one timeshare with Carlos Williams. And many would argue that Carlos Williams was the more effective running back in 2013 for Florida State. So Devonta Freeman wasn't very good at Florida State when he was there, and he wasn't very good at, at in Atlanta last year outside of some efficiency in the passing game, 
which we would all agree. He's a good pass-catching running back. He's a good third down back. That's the one area where he shows promise is in the passing game. It's not on first and second down. It's not on the goal line. It's not in standard personnel packages. That's not an area where you want Devonta Freeman carrying the ball. And there's also the fallacy, it continues, that Tevin Coleman doesn't have the vision and the instincts and the hip swivel and the hip fluidity to be a great running back in a zone blocking scheme. And last week I was on the Angle of Pursuit Fake Pigskin podcast. That was a marathon podcast. Kyle Robert, Dennis Dunbar, they host a great podcast. And I've been on their show before. Please look for it on iTunes. Subscribe to their show on iTunes and you can listen. They broke the show into two episodes. We covered the NFC South because the NFC South is just this fantastic division with so many so many depth charts. Devin Funches versus Kelvin Benjamin over here. Devonta Freeman versus Tevin Coleman over there. Jameis Winston. Oh, there's just oh, treasure trove of players to talk about in the NFC South. And Dennis Dunbar and I, we love debating. He's the one guy in the fantasy football industry that I enjoy debating. He's a tape watcher. That's the thing. I like debating with tape watchers. I just am turned off by the pious, pretentious film watchers who think they know more than everything else. That's not Dennis Dunbar. Dennis Dunbar doesn't have an ego. He's a regular guy who just loves breaking down football. That's my kind of guy. I prefer to be the nerd in the room. I don't want to be in a room with five other nerds. That's worst case scenario. Have you ever been, I'm assuming most of the people that listen to this show are nerds themselves. I I think you, if you're listening right now, you're probably a nerd. Have you ever been in a room with five other nerds like yourself? It's awful. So I don't want that. I don't want that for me. I don't want that for anyone. Dennis Dunbar is not a nerd. Part of the reason I like talking to him. And on that show, The Angle of Pursuit, Dennis was the second person whose show I was on. Because earlier I was on a show with Ross Tucker. And Dennis said the same thing Ross Tucker said. That this idea that Tevin Coleman is not a fit for zone blocking schemes in the NFL is complete nonsense. Because Tevin Coleman ran successfully outside zone runs at Indiana. And if the Falcons didn't think that Tevin Coleman had the talent or the instincts or the vision to be successful in his own blocking scheme, they simply wouldn't have drafted him. And it's funny because in the days after I shredded this analysis, this idea that Tevin Coleman is not a fit for zone blocking schemes. I called out this analysis as essentially regurgitated nonsense that so many analysts were plagiarizing. Just copy and pasting this idea into articles, into tweets. I saw it over and over and over and over and over again. And so I came out and I blasted it. But the funny thing was, no one could figure out who I was beefing with. So now, because so many people regurgitated that analysis, I'm getting accused of beefing 
with a whole slew of different fantasy analysts. I'm accused of beefing with Matt Waldman. I've been accused of beefing with Sigmund Bloom. I've been accused of beefing with Johnny Rumford over this. Matt Kelly calls out Analyst X. I don't know how many times I've read that email or read that tweet over this Tevin Coleman fallacy that he's not a fit for zone blocking schemes. I'm beefing with no one because I called that fallacy. I said, this analysis is coming and it is a fallacy. I said it on a Monday. And the analysis was printed and tweeted and discussed on podcasts starting that Monday afternoon and then on Tuesday and on Wednesday and on Thursday and on Friday. The analysis was regurgitated and regurgitated and regurgitated and regurgitated over again. But I called my shot. I told you it was going to happen before it happened. Therefore, I'm not beefing with anyone. I preemptively beefed with everybody, essentially, is what ended up happening. So like frogs falling from the sky, all of a sudden this Tevin Coleman isn't a fit for zone blocking scheme starts showing up. And I am the guy who is beefing. But that's how the internet works. You need to find someone to beef with someone. We finally have a rookie that is polarizing. And I just happen to be on the forefront of discussing the fact that he's a perfectly fine fit for his own blocking scheme. In fact, as Dennis and I agree on this, Dennis was also on the forefront. Dennis was also way out in front of this early on saying, no, actually, Tevin Coleman is a great fit for zone blocking schemes. If there's one thing that Tevin Coleman can do, it's make one cut and then explode through a hole. That's his talent. That's what you're asked to do in outside zone blocking scheme runs. So why isn't Tevin Coleman a fit for that? Nobody knows. This is also a reason, as an aside, it's one of the reasons I have a lot of respect for Evan Silva. Because Evan Silva wasn't one of those mainstream analysts that just copy and pasted this idea that Tevin Coleman isn't a great fit for zone blocking schemes into his analysis. He didn't do that. In fact, a few days after I first started discussing this fallacy about Tevin Coleman, Evan Silva reached out to me and he said, what's up with all this noise now I'm hearing about Tevin Coleman? How did he suddenly become this polarizing figure? And I said, Evan, think about, think whatever you want about Tevin Coleman. Just don't buy into this. He's not a fit for zone blocking schemes gibberish. In fact, if you don't, don't take my word for it, go talk to Ross Tucker. See what he says. He was an offensive lineman in the NFL. Ask him if he thinks Tevin Coleman is a fit for zone blocking schemes in the NFL. So... Evan Silva decided to be thoughtful about it. He went out, talked to more, more people than just me, of course. He gathered a bunch of information. Then he thought about it for a while. And then he gave his take on Tevin Coleman. That's how thoughtful analysis comes to be. And that's why you hear very little of it, because you just people want to be first. They want to, fir- they want to be the first to drop their article on the NFL draft. They want to be the first to say the thing that's interesting. That's what we get in this sea of knucklehead sports analysts. And that's why 
Evan Silva, who is technically a mainstream fantasy analyst, stands out so much because of how thoughtful he is and how diligent he is with his information gathering. And no better example of that than how Evan Silva navigated these conflicting opinions that spawned around Tevin Coleman. Evan Silva is the real deal. If anyone is the real deal, it's Evan Silva.